Greetings from Soho. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. At its gayest and brightest, the West End has the real look of Christmas. Movies, theatres, restaurants do their part to see that a good time will be had by all. So why should anyone worry? Certainly nothing disturbs the minds of the happy folk who are starting out on a jolly evening. But only a stone's throw from the bright lights, it's a different story. Bookshops do brisk business in what many people say is pornography, even downright obscenity. This is Soho, catering for all tastes, low included. Even the cats are a bit furtive. Even the cats are furtive. Well, I haven't seen a cat in Soho for some time. I am sitting in Soho at Soho Radio, where most of our episodes are recorded and broadcast first. This area has changed a lot since I've been in London, and certainly since that clip was recorded. I'm Stephen Coates, and as you know, we love countercultural stories and tales of lost culture. And today, we're going to travel back in time, though not in space, to take a peep through the keyhole at a story of under-the-counter culture, a lost world of Soho porn. But before we do that, I want to say thanks to all those who responded to the survey we sent out last week. Absolutely amazing results. I've got to say I've got enough books and film recommendations to last me a lifetime. I'm going to talk more about the results, some of which were very surprising, at the end of this episode if you're interested. And if you want to let us know about you, there'll be a link to the survey in the show notes. Right, well... My guest today is an archaeologist and curator. She has spent decades excavating and rescuing forgotten, neglected, stigmatised or hidden phenomena. Her subjects include the history of aerial archaeology, old maps, concrete megaliths, suburban folklore, 19th century photographs from a secret museum, and a study of phallus collecting, an account of the Edwardian cult of Qatar, amongst other things. And she's made the first major study of our subject today. The Soho typescripts, or Soho Bibles as they've become known. Handmade, illegal, obscene books like early zines. Typewritten, mimeographed manuscripts with two or three pornographic stories or a novella. Many of them contained drawings or photographs and they were sold under the counter in post-war London and provincial second-hand bookshops. Thousands were produced but only a proportion survive today. We're going to talk about Soho Bibles. We're going to talk about Mickey Mouse having sex, the secret rooms of the British Museum, the private case at the British Library, a prehistoric phallus, erotic fish, police corruption, the Obscene Publication Act, and pornography as counterculture. Dr. Helen Wickstead, welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Nice to see you again, Helen. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, lost culture fe- features quite uh, highly, doesn't it, in your life and in your researches and writings. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to talk about the so-called Soho Bibles. And here we are, right, right in the middle of Soho. But it's changed a bit, hasn't it? I mean, let's just start off with that, because something very interesting I was reading in your research paper was the fact that Soho itself became a kind of adjective which meant rude or obscene or risque, right? Yeah, I was quite interested in the movement from French, so Mm. French books or French kissing or anything French, French letters, of course, being condoms, 
<clears throat> towards Soho. So you could just put the mm. word after the war. Soho right. meant naughty and right. rude. And you could put it in front of all sorts of things, including the word Bible, the Soho Bible, right. being a pornographic book. I was looking at a documentary the other day, made very recently, talking about Soho, a notorious kind of red light seedy district. And of course, they all show the, the same images of about the three remaining sort of uh, <laughs> strip joints or kind of pawn shops. Soho now isn't anything like that, even though it's still always used as a sort of byword, isn't it, for seediness? Yeah, although Soho is still a place where there's lots oh. of people precariously employed, freelancers. It's right. still got this right. kind of economic dynamism, and that's certainly it was also part of the sex industry, actually. A lot of people trying to make their way on the up through mm. precarious and freelance kind of jobs. Right. So in some sense, there's a continuity whilst they're not so much doing porn in the same way. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're not displaying porn in shop windows. Right, but the kind of writers, the people who were going to find out about, creatives as they would be called now, yeah, yeah, that's very much still part of it. So the Soho mm. typescripts, as they're sort of officially called, handmade obscene books produced in the 1950s and 60s associated with Soho and sold from bookshops here under the counter and then in provincial second-hand bookshops. But they've become kind of colloquially known as Soho Bibles. And you said that's because of the Tijuana Bibles, is that right? That's something I'm trying to nail down, actually, exactly when does this word Bible come into use. It's something that you do find in people like pioneering porn researchers, really, who mm. were associated with Soho. Gillian Freeman, who was a journalist in the 60s, she did some kind of weird ethnological work visiting Soho shops and, and you know, and I want to excavate exactly when do people start calling them Bibles and right. when do they call them typescripts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tijuana Bibles, what are they anyway? The West Coast of America mm -hmm. and they're kind of cartoon strip okay. pornographic books with things like Mickey Mouse having sex and okay. Betty Boo having sex and okay. <laughs> all kinds of things like that. So they're drawn and mm. a lot of the images in Soho typescripts are also drawn. So that might, mm. for modern-day collectors, be part of the appeal. Although the majority of typescripts that I looked at for my study, they were mostly unillustrated, actually. Because using the word Bible, it's, it's a bit subversive as well, isn't it? So it's kind of taking something which is the holy book and then kind of turning it on its head. You've brought a couple here, and um, you know, I have seen them before, and I am you know brought a couple from your collection in. And this one's The Activities of the Society of Good Companions. Sounds quite innocent. Um, this one a bit less so. This is the called Triangle of Sex and with colour sex photos in it, one which is sticking through through the front. Just to describe them, they hand-produced effectively, you know, zines, I suppose. You could, you, that's the nearest thing. Fanzines is the nearest. Punk fanzines or something like that, isn't it? A lot of them look very much like punk zines and it's the same technology. So what you would do is you'd, if you were a kind of hard-up writer, is you'd sit at home with a sheaf of uh, waxed paper type out about 5,000 words or so and then attempt to sell it mm. to a porn merchant, probably in a Soho pub. Right. And um, the waxed paper allowed you to put it on something called a mimeograph and then essentially you'd have a stencil and you could kind of hand crank, you could crank them out and uh, then produce probably up to about 100 copies before the stencil just broke mm. and was unusable. You could do a similar thing like by scraping into the wax. So in the Society of Good Companions, which I've brought you along because it's a kind of weird sexological 
imagined sexological society that they have drawings that are scraped out of the right of the wax yeah yeah so they look fairly kind of crude and interesting i think they're visually mm. quite um distinctive yeah you've almost um, got this feeling of like outsider art about them right because this mimeograph these sort of early self-printing machines that ties it into other stuff which happened later like the independent press you know the free press as it were in the sort of late 60s was, was using that same sort of technology wasn't it small editions by nature because the actual thing that you typed it on wore out so yeah. they automatically became like limited edition right exactly so but also that means that you got a small kind of clique right. they have a kind of cliquey element to them and some of the imagery as well, because sometimes people reuse bits of card from mm. other, th- you know, they kind of, because uh, they're DIY, really. So the aesthetic is a kind of pre-punk punk aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. And there is something quite, I think particularly of Westwood and stuff, some of the s and Im- imagery that she used or her McLaren sort of reused. You can't help wondering whether they were influenced somewhat by these books i'm sure they'd seen them right you know there's something because some of the imagery in there is this kind of very cheaply produced s&m collagey stuff right and that made its way into their graphic there's a big category of soho bibles called flage and flage is uh, flagellation Mm -hmm. and they are about obviously whipping and spanking and those sorts of things but also rubber fetish wear there's some fairly early ones that I looked at in the British Library of people wearing rubber anoraks mm. and hitting each other with hairbrushes. And I think that would have appealed to um, punk because it's the sort of thing that you might as a child find in your dad's hidden away, Bottom in of the your wardrobe. dad's drawer, yeah, <laughs> um, and kind of around from the 50s still. So these mm. things are being produced after the end of the war when in 1953 paper comes off the ration it's much easier to make diy pornography at that point Mm. they're kind of think they're sort of interested in hidden seed me underside of Mm. middle class suburbia which old typescripts Mm. knocking around is very much you know exposing that kind of thing yeah i grew up in a very catholic household so i'm afraid i didn't have any any of that stuff in my dad's wardrobe not that i could Uh, as far as you know as far as you know know. Um, listen home we've dived in deep already but i just wanted to kind of back up the truck a bit um and just talk about you you've already mentioned it then about your research in the british library and as i said at the beginning you know you've got this ongoing interest in Secret collections, hidden collections, rescuing forgotten, neglected, stigmatised or hidden phenomena. So tell us about that. Tell us about you and about how you came to this. Because you're also an archaeologist, so you're used to actually getting down and dirty um, in a different way. Yeah, I was very interested when I was excavating. I I excavated a prehistoric phallus. Mm. And uh, you don't find many of them. They're really cool objects, but they're also quite ambiguous objects. So I was kind of pulled into, well, how it, how is it that this object gets identified as a kind of phallus when, you know, we don't know what word people would have used for it in prehistory. So how is it that this category came about? And then I started ferreting about in museum collections, trying to find more of these prehistoric phalli and trying to make sense of how people used to make sense of them in the past. Right. So that led me into parts of museums that you wouldn't normally get to and that aren't on display. And then I started working particularly in the secret museum that used to be in the north basement of the British Museum. 
and I was looking at that collection, which is an amazing, was a huge collection of, you know, nearly 500 objects from all around the world and with extraordinary documentation. Mm. And while I was working on that material, I was just in a pub in Surbiton of all places and I met an ex-porn star, uh, a brilliant woman, and she said, oh, you're looking at these you know, hidden books. I know some hidden books. You need to meet my friend Dave. So then I went to uh, Dave Nataro's shop, mm. Ram Books in Islington, which is a brilliant, brilliant shop, and found books that, you know, are not, there's very, very few of them in public collections in the, in the United Kingdom. I was instantly aware that they wouldn't be in copyright libraries. So I really got interested in you know getting some of those books which are quite an important mm. part of social history particularly in places like Soho yeah. into museums yeah. so that's what led me to right. TypeScripts. Yeah right and so just to say a little bit about that those rooms at the British Museum so I'm assuming that they're accessible only really to academics you know they're called secret or for a reason to sort of like partly because the actual content maybe isn't suitable for a your average visitor, is that right? They used to be accessible mm. only to scholars from the 19th century upwards up until the mid-20th century. And then a lot of the collection was split up. A lot of the objects in there are really not mm. sexually explicit in any way. <laughs> They're kind of feet or hands or fish, but things that to a 19th century mindset were imagined to be part of a cult of phallic worship. Fish? Fish, fish, yeah, <laughs> very much. That's a new one. Okay. Yeah, all that th sort okay. of watery vaginal imagery. In okay. the 19th century, okay. the phallic symbol was as much about women's bodies as it was right. about okay. men's bodies. Okay. So they had all sorts, there's mm. all sorts in that collection, an awful lot of it you would look at and is completely innocuous. And a fair amount of it has been right. in temporary exhibitions on display. So it's yeah. not so secret now. I think it's somebody told me, it may have been you last time we met, that um, didn't you have to sit sort of at the front at the library if you were examining their, these materials with your hands on the table the long time? Was it you yeah. telling me that? Uh, that's actually the British Library, library which like. used to be the British Museum Library. Mm. I mean, they're still related. Mm. Um, but the British Library has a collection called The Private Case. Right. And um, it's kind of officially not a thing. It's a cupboard. A lot of things that I look at now are in a, in a in particular a cupboard. cupboard. But uh, The Private Case was for a long time part of the librarian's office in the British Museum. So you had to go um, through the office to get to the cupboard. Yeah. It would be the good stuff. Yeah. And in fact, it wasn't on the catalogue. Mm, right. So until the late 60s, when people, there was a big public campaign mm. to get the private case out into the catalogue. Huh. Because before that, you had to know it was there already. Right. There was no way of finding it unless you knew it was already in the library. And you'd only know it was there if you were an insider, as it were, a library insider. Exactly. So there's a public demand for it to bring out the, you know, bring out your dirty linen sort of thing. Yeah, there wow. was a campaign in the Times. Journalists right. were involved. Right. Yeah, it was quite a, an important 1960s campaign mm. to try and get it onto the catalogue. And in 1968, they agreed that's what they would do eventually. Right. About the same time that swear words came into the Oxford English Dictionary. Huh. And uh, then 
very, very slowly it went onto the catalogue. Right. That must have been a nice job there. Some lucky young man, maybe. Got the job for doing that. Okay, this is a separate thing. It's the private uh, collection, as it were. And that is much more publications which are erotic in some way. Is that right? All sorts of things, some of which were thought to be libelous, so weren't sexually explicit at all. Right. The 19th century category of obscenity is very broad, so blasphemous material right. also yeah. would be in the private case. And um, it does contain, though, a lot of French and Latin pornographic books right. as well. Yeah. And also it contains 21 Soho Bibles, right. which were smuggled in. Smuggled in? in yeah, well. they, they were, had to smuggled be, out. Yeah, they wow. had to be smuggled into right. the museum. They right. weren't... The, I can't find any evidence that these typescripts were ever shown right. to the trustees. And in fact, the British Museum Library trustees had turned down crates of this material, Soho Bibles, before this. So the um, honorary curator of the private case, a fantastic psychic investigator called Eric Dingwall. He secured some typescripts by writing to a bookshop that had just had their stock seized by the police. So he found out from this bookshop they just had their stock seized. And then he sent a very official looking letter to the police saying, it's my job to take these things for the nation, <laughs> which is a little bit preposterous. Yeah. For myself, more like. <laughs> um, but however, they did manage to get some typescripts by that route. And then subsequently, J.L. Wood catalogued them on the sly, right. I think. Please. And Eric Dingwall wasn't seen for the next month. <laughs> well, it's a rather sad yeah. story because he's the person who really mm. started to make the private case mm. into a more sexological type mm. collection um, to rival that that um, Kinsey was amassing mm. in America. So he made a conscious effort mm. to collect a whole load of material. But when the private case was opened, if you like, and put onto the catalogue, it was, in a way, the end of his mm. sexological collecting right. mission. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he didn't leave the British Library happily. Yeah, well, we, we should actually do a show about uh, Eric Dingwall at some point. As you said, he's a psychic investigator yeah. and all this sort of stuff. So uh, the, the private case becomes effect effectively public, right? But it's still restricted, because I'm sure you told me this thing about that if you wanted to examine something, you had to sit at the front with your hands above the table. I was in looking at the private case material, mm. material that used to mm. be in the private case just two days ago. Right. And I still had to sit at a special desk where a member of library staff is able to see what you are up to. Up. Yeah. Um, so if people do want to go to the British Library and look mm. at typescripts, which are there in the collection, um, they will still need to sit at a very special desk. Keep your hands visible at all times, yeah. boys. Okay. This stuff, but it's in the sort of secret museum or in the private case. Um, obviously, not all of it by any means, but a lot of it has got this kind of sexual erotic content. Talking about privately produced, secretly produced publications here. But let's go right back. For younger listeners, maybe, who are used to getting anything you want whenever you want at the click of a mouse button, um, why all this secrecy? Why all this privacy? Why all this hiding of stuff which, some of it's very saucy, but... A lot of it is rather like Mills and Boone erotic fiction, to tell you the truth, but with a bit of uh, bad sex thrown yeah. in. Um, probably the place to start is 1857, which was the first Obscene Publications Act. 
And that was the act that made it possible to seize books that were exhibited for sale. So private collectors, they left alone, which is great because some of that material has found its way into into museum collections. But um, booksellers in particular, their stock could be seized and burnt and they themselves were prosecuted under English common law. That act made obscene books in particular the focus of police attention. And then after the war in the 50s, an awful lot of modernist literature, so D.H. Lawrence, Mm. James Joyce, those kinds of writers were caught up in the Obscene Publications Act. There was a lot of pressure for reform of it. And I think in a way that publicity Mm. around obscene publications lent a kind of cachet, if you like, to reading erotic fiction. And um, also made it... Something, I think, that people thought that maybe the more entitled classes in society had access to and they themselves were being prevented from accessing. So it's they're quite political, really, mm. by the 50s and 60s, mm. these books. Mm. And it's probably worth saying that even in terms of the act, before that and after that, there were, you know, collectors of porn, mainly, as you pointed out, from the upper classes. But there was also... Before Soho became the centre of, you know, publications under the counter, there was other places in London, and of course, the main one being Holywell Street. Here is a sidebar about Holywell Street. Today the street has vanished, but it was variously described as a foul sink of iniquity, a place where dirt and darkness meet. And in the words of the Times, it was the most vile street in the civilised world. The meridian of London's booming pornography trade, a byword for the dirty book trade long before Soho. If, when it comes to the pleasures of the flesh, we're accustomed to think of the Victorians as a prudish and repressed breed, a trip down Holywell Street in the late 19th century would be an eye-opening experience. Books abounded, stuffed into sooty shop windows, spilling onto trestle tables on the pavement, being forever unloaded from horse-drawn carts. It was situated on the cusp of Fleet Street, the nerve centre of the biggest publishing industry in the world. It was originally the terrain of radical pamphleteers and printmakers, but following a government crackdown on subversive print in the 1810s, maverick publishers diverted their revolutionary impulses from politics into pornography, and the street became a powerhouse of the dirty book trade. One denizen of Holywell Street was William Dugdale, one of the most prolific publishers of dirty books. In 1857, the government had passed the Obscene Publications Act, threatening pornographers with ruinous prison sentences and transforming Holywell Street into a wellspring of illicit erotica. Dugdale had to operate under at least four fake names and from several different addresses. He managed to evade custodial sentences for some time, partly by threatening a jury with a knife at one point, but a decade later, his luck ran out, and convicted, he died a lonely death in the Clerkenwell House of Corrections in 1868. But in spite of the draconian laws, shopkeepers proved resourceful, and Londoners could still find, dotted amongst the clothesmen's stalls and the more respectable second-hand bookshops, dollops of pornography. Say you visited in the 1890s, staring down at you would be a range of titillating titles like the power of mesmerism, a highly erotic narrative, 
1891, The Seducing Cardinal, 1830, and The Lustful Turk, 1864. You might also find, a little further into the shop, Captain Strokall's Pocketbook of 1844, an experimental lecture by Colonel Spanker in 1878, and The Amatory Experiences of a Surgeon, 1881. Some, like the story of a dildo privately printed in 1880, obscenely illustrated and limited to a print run of 150, were very rare. Others, like Randiana or Excitable Tales, being the experiences of an erotic philosopher, were so salacious they were kept behind the counter. In this one, the readers were treated to a potpourri of sexual encounters featuring orgies, ecclesiastical buggery and lesbian sex scenes. If the sight of pornographic prints and slides aroused customers, they could walk to the end of Holywell Street and double back into Witch Street. In appearance, it was similar, grimy, narrow, and with gables toppling over the street. But here, many of the buildings were brothels, some flagellation brothels. In spite of repeated police and government crackdowns, the pornographers of Holywell Street proved resilient. It began to look like the only way to suppress Holywell Street, for good, was to wipe it off the map. And, right at the end of the 19th century, that's exactly what happened. By 1901, both Holywell and Witch Street would be gone. But London's pornography trade didn't vanish with them, of course. Its centre of gravity simply shifted to the other end of the Strand, Charing Cross Road, which became the new nucleus of erotic books, and after that, to Soho where sex bookshops can still be found to this day. Thanks to my friend, Dr. Matthew Green, for that. It was kind of, it was seemed to be accessible more by the people who had, who, who had money. There was Frank Harris, Ashby, you know, these famous porno, Victorian pornographers, right? And then by the time you get to this era that we're talking about, so you're saying that actually it's a bit like, yeah, we want some of that too. You know, not just for the kind of dandies and the the effects and the, you know, the, the the highly refined sophisticates. Yeah, very much so. I think, especially after the Profumo affair, right. you know, which obviously involved Christine Keeler, who was employed in Soho. Um, hmm. I think there was a big uh, kind of feeling that, um, you know, yeah, we we deserve to be living the same sort of sexually libera- liberated lifestyle to some extent. Yeah, and the Profumo as, affair, again, I mean, I suppose this is a political scandal where it becomes apparent that Profumo himself has been, you know, involved with prostitutes. So it was a kind of, it was a bursting of the bubble of sort of public propriety of politicians, wasn't it? It's like they mm. do it too, right? You know what I mean? It, was, it sort of, it shattered some illusion, didn't it, about about sort of the establishment in this country. Mm. I think we should be careful just to say that Christine Keeler, um, yeah. n- not not a prostitute, but uh, mm. somebody involved mm. as a model. Yeah. Uh, Wrongly labelled as a prostitute. Yeah, uh, yeah. exactly. Mm. Yeah. It's a really interesting and exciting period where there's the counterculture beginning. Mm. Uh, and on the, on the other hand, there are these typescripts that are circulating really widely across the country and are quite expensive still. Right. No, you can buy pornographic postcards from the late 19th century reasonably cheaply, but still much more expensive than you would an ordinary postcard. Right. And these books are costing between um, two to six days of... um, pay average yeah. salary right. so okay. you would you yeah. would have to work for a week as a normal working class right. person to still get even one of these 
right. poorly typed, handmade yeah. Yeah. Uh, books. Yeah. And so they, they, are, they were reasonably expensive and difficult to get hold of because obviously anybody walking into a bookshop in Soho could be a plainclothes policeman. Right. So, right. you know, it was right. tricky to... Um, to access them as well. They contain two or three sort of short stories ish on the erotic stories, sometimes, as you said, with some photographs kind of like connected or some drawings. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess you, once you'd spent your five days salary on yeah. one, it would be sort of rather precious object in some ways. I mean, she, I mean, she either treasured or circulated amongst you and your peers or something, right? Exactly, yeah. I think people did hang on to them, although of course when they died and, you know, people found what was right. in the bottom drawer, they tended to be destroyed rather yeah. than go into collections. Some of them did have uh, photographic prints mm. sort of stapled in cloth covers. They're not um, high-tech productions mm. by any means. Also, some of them had drawings, but they really were textual productions for the most part. You also say that they shared the appetites of pulp fiction, right? So this thing about the sensational, the erotic avant-garde, taboo sexuality, as you mentioned that earlier, sometimes horror fantasies and science fiction, um, all mixed up together. Um, You could definitely get sci-fi. The war was obviously something a lot of the customers had been through, so there's an awful lot of... um, institutionalized settings right there's things happening on islands you know in sort of imperial scenarios the sorts of things that you would imagine in the middle of the 20th century would capture the imagination yeah. i read 50 of them for my study <laughs> well uh, as you i was get, reading actually it, get through them i mean you sort of cover to cover yeah, yeah, 50 yeah, I mean, of them. Because, listener, they, they, you know, there's a lot of text in them. And yeah. They're not always very well typed. The ones where it's a flage scenario tend mm. to be quite romantic. They often end in marriage. Right. Whereas okay. the, the ones that are called straight or yeah. les, meaning where yeah. they have lesbian yeah. sex in them, they are a little bit more kind right. of free-floating at the end. Right. People go their separate ways. Right. But, uh, Whip yeah. Hard, doesn't, which is 1960, doesn't sound... Um, too romantic. <laughs> That's some flage from right. the British Library private case. <laughs> so features so, Robin Mackintoshes and straitjackets, yeah. The private case ones were particularly useful because mm. they were seized in 1963. Because the dates, the place of publication, the authors for these typescripts are mm. all entirely fictitious. Right. So you can't work right. with them like you would normal right. literature. Right. The authors have names like uh, Nick Erzdown. Yeah, there's quite Roger a lot. Of, and Phil McQuim. Yeah, there's you know. lots, lots of terrible puns, aren't there? So uh, let's talk a bit about the writers then. I mean, indigenous hacks who crowded the pubs of Soho. Uh, you said that some of them sort of did pride themselves, um, you know, on the on the artistic quality um, of their tales. Is it Nickers Down? In fact, is, is maybe he says that he he made one fuck last for forty two pages. <laughs> Yeah, now, Nick Osdown says he's probably one of the last typescript writers. I I was so lucky to interview him. So he's still alive? He's still alive. He's still writing. Right. Not under the same name. And uh, I'm afraid I'm not at liberty to use his real name. He did um, write typescript fiction Mm. at at an early Mm. stage in in his career. Mm. Very lucky to get to interview him Mm. when I was doing the... uh, the research that I did for the Museum of London at the mm. time, I got their copies yeah. of yeah. Soho Bibles into their collection. Yeah. And uh, I also interviewed Dave Natero, whose family mm. owned bookshops in Soho. He's obviously still owns a bookshop. So Dave has a lot of 
the stock that mm. used to be in Soho bookshops. Mm. There obviously was still old stock knocking right. around right. that he's got in his bookshop mm. now. So the very tail end of Soho bookshops mm. is in his basement in Islington. And he was also able to tell me about his uncle, Anthony right. Soneshka, who um, was a bookseller and yeah. bookshop manager. Yeah, because he came from a sort of generation of, of pawn bookshop sellers, right? Yeah, this, these were family businesses. Mm, family uh, businesses very yeah. often Italian families mm. were running um, mm. bookshops in Soho. So you would have family members yeah. who you trusted yeah. uh, to manage bookshops. Yeah. You said as well, you know, that they, like this phrase, very mixed quality from the surprisingly inventive to the downright abysmal. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> you've got Nickers down, you know, whatever his real name is, and a gaggle of other writers, some women, right? You know, mm-hmm. you make this point that actually women also wrote the pornography as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that there was a kind of coterie of, you know, people who knew each other, the people who, you mm. know, produced the, the books themselves, physically produced them, and a kind of gaggle of writers who'd meet round here in pubs. And the writers would just come up with stuff, would they, and pitch them, or would they be commissioned? Or, I mean, how would it... How would it work and how was, what, how was the economy of it for them? The main determining force of the Soho bookshop economy was the police. Right. And that was one of the things that kept the price of Soho Bibles so high was because if you're going to run bookshops in Soho and sell this material, you had to pay bribes to the police. Right. And that was a hu- hugely inflated prices and meant that really um, characters like Bill Moody, who went mm. to prison, mm. you know, and... Um, I think he was paid just by one typescript writer £14,000. And that's in the uh, late 60s. So that writer was also a merchant, I should say, unusually within the trade. If you were a bookshop owner like, say, Jimmy Humphreys or Eric John Mason, otherwise known as Carpet, he owned about 10 bookshops, and they would be paying a lot of money to the police who knew very much that this was happening and were closely involved in it, actually. But the dustman, you know, is a Soho typescript producer, and he claimed to have bribed 148 police officers by early 1970. I mean, that is astonishing, isn't it? When it all came out into the papers in the early 70s, and it ended up with trials in the mid-70s, at least 50 police officers were moved from Soho. Mm. So it was a huge, huge scandal Mm. that led to very high up policemen losing their jobs. Yeah, it went all the way through. And it wasn't because it wasn't just the bookshops, it was the clip joints, right? And the walk-ups, the knock-up shops, you know, so-called. Yeah. And the, you know, the clubs. There was a whole, very lucrative, if you're a police officer who got assigned to Soho. I mean, £14,000 was a lot of money then, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, an enormous amount of money was was made. And um, it's a matter of public record that the police were so involved that they went on holiday with key porn merchants, <laughs> you know, so they were closely involved. They knew each other's wives. Right. They socialised together. They were in pubs in Soho very regularly. And uh, it was well known that money changed hands in Soho pubs to enable bookshops to trade. Yeah. And it, it was one of the reasons why, actually, the books are fairly basic and they, they still had the DIY kind mm. of aesthetic because there was no incentive to make your books much better than anybody else's books. Uh, you just needed to make them adequate mm-hmm. and then pay the police the money that you needed to pay. 
And presumably the police would do the old sort of bust every now and again just to give the impression to the sort of wider public that they were actually they were on it in some way. And what used to happen apparently is that um, when they they would be tipped off that a raid was going to happen, and then the bookshop manager would nip down to Piccadilly Circus and say to some poor guy, "Oh, I have to leave my shop. Will you please come and look after my shop right. for just for a couple of hours, and I'll pay you right. some colossal amount of money." And then poor. A huh. uh, person came and stood in this bookshop, and then they got arrested. So it was, uh, yeah, there were various ways to have mm. a raid that didn't result in criminal convictions for the people who were high up in the trade. Well, on that subject, here's a little recording of longtime Soho resident Harvey Gold from an interview he did for This Is Soho. See a lot of sex shops opened up, and a lot of bookshops, and in the bookshops. They were selling books and photographs, which really were a bit over the top. And what the owner used to do, he would put a chap, as a, called him the manager, but they said he was the man in the chair. And the man in the chair, if the police raided the bookshop, then that chap would be in trouble. So obviously, they, he would be sent to prison probably, may get three months. So the owner would be out of it. So they were called, that was called the man in the chair. In those days, unfortunately, there was a lot of problem with the police uh, at Savile Row. And what they would do, there was one police officer there, and one of his men would bring the bookshop in the morning and say, at two o'clock this afternoon, there's gonna be a raid on your shop. So the chap in the chair, would contact what I call a runner. And one of the chaps would come along with a big canvas bag. And he would put in that bag all the stuff that they shouldn't be selling, photographs and books. They'd zip the bag up and they used to rent uh, part of a building in Bridal Lane off of Burr Street and put the bag up in one of the, on one of the floors there and leave it there to the all clear. And unfortunately, it was a bad period at that time because the police inspector would then arrange a meeting with the owner over in North or South Audley Street where they'd meet up in the pub and they would be passed a brown paper bag. And in the brown bag would be some money. I'm pleased to tell you all that that inspector, I think he went to live in Spain, but He's dead now, and I'm, I'm, I hope now it's all cleaned up and that villainy doesn't go on anymore. So the cost of them is actually partly to do with that then, So because there's a, a big, let's call it tax, an informal vice yeah. tax has been, has been bunged to the, to the police, right? That meant that freelancers and people who wanted to break into the trade, very difficult and also very dangerous mm-hmm. for you to attempt that. But strangely would have given some sense of reassurance to a punter who wants to buy this in some way because if they know that the police are in league with the proprietor of the shop, they're much less likely to kind of like get fingered themselves, aren't they, if they're buying this stuff. Possibly. I don't know how much your average punter would have known. I mean, I think people who lived in Soho and were involved in the trade, they knew. Um, But I think that a lot of the people visiting Soho bookshops um, were coming from the suburbs. Right. Okay. They were commuters into yeah. 60, 50s and 60s yeah. London. They're coming on the train. Yeah. 
they earn enough money to buy this material yeah. and they're going to take it back to their suburban semi. Right. So I don't think they necessarily knew about the yeah. ins and outs of right. the production. And possibly, I think there's a long-standing um, thing that customers want from pornography, which is they want to think that everyone involved is really enjoying it and they don't want to know that it's a fictional creation, mm, right, <laughs> right? right? So yeah, yeah. people want to maintain yeah. some idea that, you know, yeah. this is somehow not an economy. And, but also, just that when you're seeing them, people, you know, hopping on a suburban train and coming in, it must have been very exciting. I mean, Soho at the time, you, you're you coming in with the, with the hope maybe of getting this. But also, you know, it's this very exotic place. You talk about Dave's family they're italians there's lots of maltese here there's lots of people mm-hmm. from different parts of the world there's also the kind of like the coffee bar things happening you know skiffle and then in, in into the 60s the you know mod culture and the, you know yeah. the clubs the jazz clubs um and, that, all, and then the you know the, the, the sort of the the, the counter culture is also going on it must have been a very exciting place you know when you if you come in from some quiet suburban town yeah behind the bright lights in the undergrowth of alleyways lies the jungle of primitive London. Here, life and people are different. The beat is offbeat. Here is the bazaar and the violet. The odd, the fascinating and fantastic. Here is London laid bare. The glamour, the spectacle, the excitement. Life is the password to primitive London. From the tired businessman to the frustrated teenager, their desire for pleasure is gratified in primitive London. Soho was like that for a long mm. time. I mean, Soho's been a place where um, it's completely international and it's been like that mm. way since the late 19th century. And in the 30s, there are spanking stories sold in parts from shops in Soho. So, you know, it's kind right. of, it's, they're not, it's not an entirely new post-war thing. But I do think the post-war period is very exciting. Mm. And there are even... Uh, magazines like the London Magazine, uh, Len Dayton writes a guide to London, which mm. suggests that people visit bookshops in Soho. So mm. it was a, a kind of tourist attraction as well. Just to go back to the rights a second, what would they get paid then? So for somebody who produced the, this, the activities of the Society of, of Good Companions, you know, and it's, it's quite, there's quite a bit of work, probably a couple of days hard typing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, at least to write it. Yeah, probably not much, ah, sadly, okay. depending on the on the writer. I mean, there's mm. one story about a, a writer who was an alcoholic who one mm. bookshop owner kept in a basement and he used to pay him in alcohol, you know, the equivalent of a couple of hundred quid. So not mm. very much um, mm. as it is now. Freelancers very often can get a bit of a, a bit of a rough deal. The people who are making the most out of it are the police and the bookshop owners, right. yeah, possibly in that order. It's very lucrative, though, for, for some right. people. Yeah, well, tell us, tell us about the dustman. Yeah, so the dustman started in the 50s photographing nudist clubs so and selling those photographs. And it was possible in Soho to sell photographs on the streets from mm. um, 
Dave has a few very interesting, really old photographs in cellophane wrappers that were sold from inside jackets on the streets of Soho. And the dustman did start off selling that right. kind of material and then started writing himself, working class character, obviously. And he produced thousands and thousands of typescripts. He was... His patron was Carpet, who had 10 bookshops by 1972 right. in Soho. That's just one So was he writing then. them as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, he was himself writing right. them and doing the photographs. He didn't write many of them, I don't think. I think he also was involved in just getting and mimeographing, doing, letting the pages dry, then stapling them all together. Mm. And also there was a whole other kind of operation which was involved in moving the typescript so if you're in Hammersmith and you've got to get them to the shops in Soho there's various ways of doing that like dressing up as window cleaners there was one person called Dennis from the foreign office and he would come in with an attache case and say I'm Dennis from the foreign office and I have (laughs) a delivery for you so coded (laughs) yeah Uh, one thing I should have said actually when it comes to the price Mm. they're pretty expensive to own and to take Mm. home to your suburban semi but you could borrow them right so like with many bookshops at that time i mean legit ones as well as porn you could actually loan books from those paid library sort of thing yeah Yeah. so you could pay about half the amount of money and rent it and then bring it back right Right. i'm not sure i would want to re-rent uh a book that had been doing the rounds for a while. <laughs> Maybe the rent got cheaper as you went along. But Yeah. So, uh, so something like the Dustman, presumably, yeah. made quite a lot of money out of it. And so. It was very profitable. But what really destroyed it was the fact that on the continent, porn was legalised. So right. it's never been legal. The Obscene mm. Publications Act is still in force in this right. country. Germans, the Scandinavians, the Dutch legalised pornography in the late 60s. So from um, 1969 upwards, it became much, much, much easier Mm. to get colour as well. Colour photographs, nicely produced, nicely lithographed. All imported illegally and sold under the counter, as it were. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, copied. Copied (laughs) Copied indigenously. So you smuggle it in and then you copy it. And that's... a you know, yeah. kind of long-standing right. aspect of the trade. Yeah. So the, there was always a trade in printed books mm. and forged, particularly forged Parisian books as well. Right. And typescripts really were driven out by a yeah. new, higher production values product. Yeah, that meant as it. ever, sort of technology is the sort of engine for change, yeah. isn't it, with all these things. And at about the same time, the police are beginning to get into trouble. The trade is not so much mm. protected by a tie-up between gangsters and police. Right. So the shops keep trading because they can keep selling stuff under the counter. There's yeah. a sort of distribution network which is still going and people are still making money, but not in this way anymore. Well, you also said that um, photographs were sold separately. Smudges, they were called smudges, right? And um, by the 70s, the models got paid something like between 25 and 50 quid for a four-hour session rising to £200 for exceptional work. Women were paid. The interesting thing is that the men were not paid. The male models. Male models were not Mm. paid initially. I do think that's possibly why they're quite rubbish. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's a big queue of volunteers, right? I think it's really interesting that being a male porn model Mm. in the 70s and 80s became 
became something you would get paid for. And I think that's a really curious shift. I'm not sure what's behind that, but I wonder whether, mm. you know, it became important to have particularly notable equipment and what? be proficient in using it. And, and it's not and be necessarily... just be a bit more attractive than some <laughs> hairy lout that sort of got in. You did say that they recruited in the fifties from the um, from the amateur, amateur nudist clubs as well. So yeah, at least they could sort of check out the goods before they bought, as it were. <laughs> and of course, the other thing, Helen, which you talked about was film, it's under the covers, under the sheets, as it were, to home produced pornographic films, right? Yeah, so there have been pornographic films for a long time, since the mm. early 1900s. I think there's one from 1910 that we still mm. have in collection. Right. And they were called stag films, and they right. were often projected, kind of, you know, associated with men's yeah. clubs and stag nights and things like that. Yeah. Um, but in eight millimeter films were a part of the Soho economy mm. and traded out mm. of the back room like mm. typescripts and Bibles. So the same sort uh, of thing produced probably in, in back rooms around here. Yeah, I mean, Pamela Green had a really important studio both for photography and for film on Gerard Street, right. four and five Gerard Street. And in fact, she and her partner, Harrison Marks, had Soho's first photographer's gallery. Right. They had a photographic ex exhibition that they advertised right. across the country. And uh, Pamela, yeah, was a very important player. She did the mm -hmm. set design, she did the costume, she recruited models. She was a major, a major, and I think very unsung right. figure right. in Soho's history and also in terms of the British film industry, actually. Right. The sort of crossing over into the kind of culture, there was that sort of no sex please with British sort of bowler hat, you know, tightly rolled umbrella briefcase sort of image of the Brits, wasn't it? But in, during the 60s, of course, we were coming loosened up, right? This is all part of it. Pornography also, in a way, became much more part of the counterculture for a while. Uh, for instance, magazines like Oz you know, yeah. quite the free press. They, they they had a lot of what you might call erotic, soft, porny imagery in them, on the covers quite often, actually. Mm. And then there was this the whole thing where pornography, in, particularly in America, say, with like Larry Flint and even Hugh Hefner, got associated with like freedom of speech. You know, we're moving away from these kind of absolute values of, of, of the previous generation, you know, and like, the, you know, the, the age of Aquarius is here. Mm. You know, it's time to kind of loosen up. They did sort of share something there for a while, at least. Yeah, intellectual and sexual freedom were connected, mm. I think, in that period. So you get people like uh, kind of media theorists like Marshall McLuhan right. writing for Playboy. You know, there there is um, there is a crossover at, mm. that, at that time, which is really interesting. And I think it's partly because the Obscene Publications Act mm. had become so unwieldy and so mm. many... Um, people who are mm. on English literature reading lists mm. were prosecuted under right. that right. act and were continuing to be prosecuted. Mm. You know, J.G. Ballard was prosecuted right. for a book called um, Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan in mm. the 70s. A sex education book called The Little Red School Book was a mm. very famous um, trial. And obviously the Oz trial was huge Oz as trial, well. Yeah, yeah. The very tail end of mm. Soho Bibles and typescripts mm. is an interesting mm. crossover. We've come to the sort of tail end, as it were, and just wanted to finish off because you've been instrumental, right, in not just talking about it, writing about it, but, you know, getting it effectively into the catalogues and, you know, recognised more in a kind of way as maybe not for the literary content, but for the social history value of it, mm. right? So that's been part of your... 
sort of mission, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's really important that uh, the sex industry, which is huge and a really important mm. part of our history in general, mm. should be part of our public collections so right. that we can research it because it's right. a major part of people's lives. Right. So, yeah, so I very much wanted that. From the 1840s, there was a law that said that every book printed in Britain had to be supplied to copyright libraries. Mm. And that means that we've got these large collections of other kinds of books. But these mm. books obviously would not be sent to libraries. Right. So there's very, very few of them in any collection, mm. which makes it hard to study a lot of people's histories, mm. including right. the histories of trans people. You know, they mm. are a real element of these typescripts. It'd be fantastic if somebody did mm. a study of that. And also gay histories, right. all kinds of histories are in typescripts mm. but they're not in collection which means that it's more difficult to to study those things right yeah yeah you read was it 30 of them i read 50. Um, in many ways bits of them are incredibly innocent mm. you know they're mm. kind of uh, dreamlike and mm. uh, i found them not to be what everybody had said you know there's obviously mm. a lot of kind of throwaway comments about mm how filthy mm. and uh, and how incompetent they are and it's not the case at all they're actually incredibly various you know and they they're romantic stories they're fake conference proceedings they're all kinds of uh, different sorts of sexological studies and uh, mm. you know all kinds of things in there so a valuable part of our I'm going to call it under the counterculture. Yeah, but part of more broadly the sexual imaginary, mm. an ongoing part of history, isn't it? And changing yeah. all the time, actually, in yeah. interesting ways. Yeah. So, listeners, um, don't rush out to the um, British Library's private case all at once, or the secret room of the British Museum. Now no, that Helen's given you the, uh, the tip on that. Helen, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me. Just to say that we're going to invite Helen back to talk about other stuff, in fact, next year when she has a book coming. Yeah, all about these uh, phallus collectors and their hundreds of years of secret museums. I'm going to put a bid in to get the first, uh, first interview on the phallus collectors. <laughs> I'd be delighted. <laughs> Looking forward to that. I will put information about Helen and her work in the show notes. And, as I mentioned, a link to the little countercultural survey that I talked about at the beginning. It's just a list of questions to find out about you, about our listeners. And one of the things that people requested was more women's voices, so I was very glad to host Helen, and she'll be coming back again, along with other women. It's been fascinating reading people's responses. It actually gave me a sense of community, which is very nice. Most, but all, listeners are from the UK, the US and the Antipodes. Not surprisingly, given this is in English. Most, though not all, by any means, are in the 30 to 60 age bracket. Most. I've got very good taste in music, books and films. I got some great suggestions for future themes. And lots of lovely words of appreciation and encouragement. They are much appreciated. If you want to add your voice to the debate, check out the link in the show notes. We're going to be acting upon some of the things that were suggested and some of the things that we asked people about if they'd be interested in. More news on that very soon. Till then, stay countercultural. 
Thanks to Esmeralda for recording this, to Adrian and Rachel at Soho Radio. Here's the Clark and Mock Kid with Another Night at Wolfie's. <laughs> 